Hear now these words from the book of Ruth, the first chapter, verses 1 through 18. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a certain man of Bethlehem in Judah went to live in the country of Moab, he and his wife and two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Malon and Chilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there, but Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives, the name of one was Orpah, and the name of the other was Ruth. When they had lived there about ten years, both Malon and Chilion also died, so that the woman was left without her two sons and without her husband. Then she started to return with her daughters-in-law from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the country of Moab that the Lord had considered his people and given them food. So she set out from the place where she had been living, she and her two daughters-in-law, and they went on their way to go back to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her daughters-in-law, Go back, each of you, to your mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find security, each of you, in the house of your husband. And then she kissed them. And they wept aloud. They said to her, No, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, Turn back, my daughters. Why would you go with me? Do I still have sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. Even if I thought there was hope for me, even if I should have a husband tonight and bear sons, would you really wait until they were grown? Would you then refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, no. It has been far more bitter for me than for you, because the hand of the Lord has turned against me. And they wept aloud again. Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. So she said, See, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her God. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, Do not press me to leave you or to turn back from following you. Where you go, I will go. Where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God shall be my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. May the Lord do thus and so to me, and more as well, even if death parts me from you. Slogan of the well-known Motel 6 chain, uttered by Tom Bodette as an ad-libbed line in his very first recording session. We'll leave the light on for you. A bit cheesy? Probably. But equally as catchy. We'll leave the light on for you. I think it plays to our desire to feel that there is a place for us. There's somewhere that we can feel at home, the desire to feel that there is somewhere that we belong. 
And I must say that the thought of someone leaving the light on for me didn't really mean much until I went away to college. You see, in my family, and perhaps in yours, each person had their own seat at my mother's dinner table. Now, there were no place cards or fancy markers to know which chair belonged to which person, but we all knew. We knew exactly which chairs was ours, and more importantly, we knew which chair was not ours. We knew where we belonged. And as members of our family came and went, the chairs always remained there, untouched and ready for them to return. And I can remember returning home one of my first weekends home from Furman University, and the promise of home-cooked food served as a pretty significant bargaining chip to pull me away from newfound friends and fun and freedom. So as I walked in the front door, there stood my mother over the stove, the smell of cube steak and rice and gravy and fried okra filling my nostrils. I was home. And it was my favorite meal. And I approached the table, and there were the placemats and the napkins and glasses and a pitcher of sweet tea, and everything was perfect. When my six foot four, big little brother plopped his body down into the chair directly across from my mother's, and before I could say a word in an absolute instant, my mother whirled around, Matt. Get out of Bailey's chair. You know you don't sit there. Now, after putting up a, a half-hearted fight, my brother begrudgingly moved to the chair at the end of the table, the one long ago that was deemed to be his. And my mother walked over, and she pulled the chair out where he had been, and lovingly she invited me to sit down. She kissed my forehead, said, welcome home. There's nothing like that feeling, is there? There's nothing like the feeling of home, of belonging, of security and comfort. The beautiful recounting of the relationship between Naomi and her daughters-in-law, Ruth and Orpah, seems to speak directly to our longing for just such security, and what happens when life presents us with quite the opposite. In the first chapter of Ruth, Naomi, her husband Elimelech, and their two sons have traveled to Moab to escape the famine that is taking place in Bethlehem. The irony here being that the name Bethlehem means house of bread or food, and yet it has run dry. However, in their attempt to find provision, and a better quality of life, we learn that soon after their arrival, Elimelech dies. After which, her two sons naturally take wives, who we must note are Moabite women, and after a short ten years, subsequently die themselves. The loss of Naomi's family is summed up in a fairly short few verses, and it's interesting to note, I think, the lack of detail that is given as to why or how any of these men passed away. But what information is given is given in direct relation to Naomi. 
You might notice that Elimelech is referred to as Naomi's husband. And the sons are Naomi's sons. Now considering that the opposite is almost always true, that a woman is named in reference to the men in her life, it seems that this turning on its head of tradition clearly points to the fact that this particular biblical account will focus on the unfolding drama of Naomi. It will focus on a woman. And it is here that the text brings her to a critical point of decision. Stay or go. In a society where fathers and husbands have, and sons provide family security, this household's prospects have declined severely. Should she continue living as a refugee in a foreign land or should she return home to her hometown alone? Either way, her future is pretty grim. The women have learned that there is now food once again in Bethlehem as the Lord has remembered his people and provided for them. So they decide to turn together and journey back towards the land of bread. But Naomi quickly stops them, and she begins her protest. As she gazes upon her daughters-in-law, she is sure that there must be more out there for them, sure that they must not be fated to spend the rest of their lives alone and struggling to survive in the midst of such grief and pain. No, she says, you must return to your people. My daughters, my daughters, turn back. Surely you will move beyond all of this. Surely you will remarry. And you will have many sons, and you will have a life not nearly as bitter as mine. What happens next is understandable, I think, since these women represent some of the most desperate in society, widows and orphans, which the biblical narrative often calls us to care for, there should be really little surprise that Naomi's command responds with an immediate burst of emotion. It says that they wept. They wept aloud. And with tears in their eyes, they protested, No, no, we will return with you to your people. And still, even with the tears streaming, Naomi insisted, I have nothing else to give to you. No more sons, no more real life, no prospects. Turn back, my daughters. Go back. She is alone in her grief and in her misery. In fact, verse 20 references the fact that she may even be welcomed back home by a name change upon her return, moving from the name Naomi or Sweet to Mara or Bitter. She believes that it is her. She believes that it is only her that must face this awful future. And furthermore, Naomi believes that she knows exactly who is behind all of this. She declares it is the hand of the Lord that has turned against her. It is the Almighty who has dealt with her harshly and bitterly. And it is God who is bringing her back empty-handed from Moab. Naomi is not only convinced, 
She is convincing. And so again, with frustratingly very little commentary, Orpah kisses her mother-in-law goodbye, and she turns towards home. But Ruth. Ruth clings to her. I like to say that Ruth wasn't buying it. She wasn't buying it. She was going to have none of what Naomi was telling her, and she clings to her, a term used in Hebrew context to describe profound love, an inalienable possession, and an unshakable commitment. But Naomi remains convinced that her grief is solitary. She remains convinced that it is only her that must lead this kind of bitter life, and she pleads one more time for Ruth to turn back and go home. And that is the moment that Ruth adds something to the story. Ruth adds speech to her action. In fact, she offers what you might refer to as a speech act, where she actually does something in and by saying something. Think of those wedding vows that maybe some of you have taken, like myself, where you stood up in front of God and everyone and said, I do, and I will. And in your saying, you implied a long, long future of doing. In this speech act, she promises to go with Naomi. She promises to stay with her, to make her people her people, to embrace her God as her God, even going so far as to say that she will die and be buried with her. Now, I don't know about you, but that's some pretty intense mother-in-law love. And to take it one step further, she even brings a curse upon herself in Yahweh's name. That was no small thing. Should she leave her before death? It is now Ruth that promises to become a foreigner in a strange and uncertain place out of her pure love and devotion for Naomi. Here we might want to pause. Because if we take a good look at verse 18, we get no clear picture that Naomi is happy about Ruth's dramatic promises and curses and protests. In fact, all we know is that Naomi simply said nothing more. Perhaps Naomi preferred to be alone in her grief. In fact, the rest of the chapter seems to confirm that Naomi continued to take solidarity and refuge in her pain. You see, pain is not easily overcome after all, nor is it easy to share pain even by those with the best intentions and some level of comparable experience because let's not forget that Ruth has lost a husband as well. But based on what has already happened in chapter 1, it seems that what Ruth is offering may have been exactly what Naomi needed. She is in need of someone to follow her into her grief, and to follow her into her pain, to walk beside her in uncertainty and worry and fear. She was in need of something known in the Hebrew language 
as chesed. You have to get it in the back of your throat. Chesed. A commitment beyond duty and a devotion that is shown in love over time. There's that speech act we talked about. It's not easy to find chesed these days, is it? And even if we did, would we recognize it? Promises made between two predictable parties are hard enough to maintain, much less between two women like this, of different tribes, different ages, different religions and geographies. And the remarkable thing about the vow of Ruth to Naomi is that it represented irrational, undemanded love. And that kind of connection is surprising. It's unconventional and it's difficult to maintain because everything in life is working against it. In our time, I think we have few areas where unexpected love must still strain against societal conventions. We strain and we search for glimpses of chesed in our lives. But when it shows up, can we recognize it? A preacher and an author in the state of Texas, Scott Walker, tells a story about turning 16. Some of us might remember that. He said the one thing he wanted when he turned 16 was the one thing that all 16-year-olds want, a driver's license. And he went down and he took the test and he got that driver's license. And the first thing he wanted to do was celebrate. And of course he wanted to celebrate with his buddies. They had been given a car to use. And so he and three friends decided to drive out into the woods, it's Texas, and go hunting. Now he admits in his storytelling that he actually hated hunting. But he was too scared to tell his friends. So he just went along with it. When they arrived to the woods, they split up, went off in different directions, promising to meet up later in the day. And he says that he went and found a nice, peaceful spot under a tree. And he read a book, and he fell asleep. Now, two hours later, he woke up freezing. And he could feel a winter storm beginning to brew and within only 15 minutes, he left to make his way back to the car. The cold rain began to pelt his face. And the darkness started to grow close. He said he wandered around for about 45 minutes in the growing dark until he finally stumbled his way to the car where two out of his three friends were waiting for him. Now, by then it was completely dark, raining, freezing, and Jim, the third friend, was nowhere to be found. Well, that's just great, one of their buddies mumbled. What are we going to do now? It's cold and dark, and he's lost out in the woods. And Scott says that shivering, we stared into the gloom of the forest, and we listened for the sound of approaching footsteps, and suddenly a muffled shot rang out. It was downfield about a quarter of a mile, and Jim was definitely lost. 
but he was looking for us. And all at once, he said, they heard a shot that took off in the pitch black, freezing cold rain towards the sound of another shot. And stumbling blindly across the hard, frosted furrows, we heard Jim fire his rifle again and again and again. And finally, we could hear him hollering. And by around 6.30, we found him. However, in the rush of trying to find our friend, in the rush of trying to follow these rifle shots going off in a dark woods, we realized that we managed to find Jim, but we had no idea how to get back to the car. And by this time, it was not just drizzling or pelting our face. It was a full-on, cold, black downpour. So he said they slowly began to follow the tree line when suddenly a flash of lightning ripped across the sky. And Pastor Walker said he thought he saw a metallic glint off in the distance somewhere. Maybe it was the car. So in a holler, he shouted, wait, 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 you guys, wait. I think I saw the car. Wait until the light flashes again. So they sat still and quiet until after about a minute, another bolt of lightning pierced the sky, and there it was, the shiny metal of the car. With that position fixed in their heads, they took off through an open field, and without agreeing to do so, he says, I noticed that we were all slowing our pace, hanging back and waiting expectantly, adapting to the darkness. We had learned to walk about 50 yards and then pause for the next glimpse of light to pierce the sky. It took a long time, he says, a long time. But eventually we reached the car. Now, Scott Walker claims he's never forgotten that night. And he writes, perhaps above all, the graphic imagery of the lightning has seared across my memory. As we stood in stormy darkness, only the periodic flashes of lightning gave my friends and me brief glimpses into where we were and where our future steps must go. The lightning, he says, was pure gift. Pure gift. It was nothing we could have earned or made happen. With all of our frantic willpower, we could not generate nor coerce its bursts of illuminations. Rather, the lightning came to us. It was something that graced our path and gave us a sense of direction in the midst of our wandering and in the midst of our perplexity. While Naomi wants to attribute all of her pain and all of her hardship to God, it is the hand of the Lord that has worked against her, she says. The story, I think, begs to tell us another tale altogether. If we hear maybe what the narrator would encourage us to hear, we see that, in fact, God's presence is all around Naomi. God is there, working through and in the midst of her pain and her uncertainty. God provides barley in Bethlehem, 
remembering the people, it says, and in turn, Naomi. And God walks alongside her towards that home that now looks nothing as it did before, a home that once brought her a husband and sons, but now feels more like a land of barrenness. And how did God make that journey with Naomi? Her name was Ruth. Indeed, Ruth is grace incarnate. With her tear-stained face, as she refuses to leave and pushes alongside her. No amount of protesting can keep her away. She will live and work and worship and die with Naomi. She will gift her with hesed. She will gift her with that unwavering grace and presence of a God that she believes has left her. Naomi struggled to see the flashes of light. I can't say that I blame her. The darkness of her pain made it hard to look up to the lightning of providence that crackled around her, yet the lightning still came. It came in the form of one who would hunker down beside her and move seamlessly with her through the cold, dark raininess of her pain and her grief it came in the form of one who would be beside her when the lightning began to get brighter and more frequent and one that would stay with her as together their story would turn eventually from loss and grief to one of new life and new hope and new promise. We've all had times in our lives when we find ourselves blindly stumbling through the dark forest. Times when we are desperate, desperate, for a glimpse at the path in front of us and we believe, as Naomi did, that the light will never, ever flash for us. We who have lost our jobs and lost our identities, we who have been used and abused, we who have fought addiction or depression, we who have had to bury friends and family, for us today, we are told there is good news. We are told the light will come. In John chapter 14, Christ promises that those moments of light will come. And it's often difficult, I think, for us to talk about the Spirit. It makes us a little uncomfortable. We're unsure how to describe it or how to wrap our minds around something that we cannot see and we cannot touch. But Jesus says, I will not leave you orphaned. I will give you the one who will be with you forever, even as he prepared to leave himself. And you see, I think that is at the heart of our encounter today. That is what the story of Ruth and Naomi is really all about. It's more than human friendship. It's more than a mind-boggling devotion to one's mother-in-law, which I still can't quite wrap my head around. It's about spirit. 
It's about divine promise and provision that emblazons the darkness of our existence. It's about something that floods light into our darkest, deepest, most painful, doubt-filled moments that we might know that God is real. That hope and love and a future exist for us and that it walks beside us in ways and in forms beyond our comprehension. And though that light may only last for a second, coming and going when we least expect it, giving us no control whatsoever, we hunker down in the promise of knowing that it will come. So keep watch, my friend, and wait for the flash. God, for so many of us, we can feel the rain pelting our face. And the darkness creeps in and we hunker down in pain and uncertainty. We are desperate to see how to put one foot in front of the other. God, help us to look for the flash. Help us to lift our heads and watch for the moments of unbending and unwavering grace and provision that present themselves to us, and maybe not in the ways and forms that we expected. We are thankful for the story of Naomi, the story of Ruth and Orpah, because it is a reminder to us that you are real, that you are present and that we are not alone. And so we ask all of these things in the name of Jesus, our risen Lord.